So please turn to Nehemiah. And someone made such a kind comment after I last spoke. They said, thank you, Dan, uh, for not skipping over chapter 3. I was like, oh, I was touched. I was very encouraged by that. So would you please turn to Nehemiah chapter 3, because uh, we're going to be there for a second time. I will give you the, uh, the recap. Now, as much as I loved and enjoyed reading that chapter last time, um, I'm sure by now that you've committed it to memory, if you were here on previous occasion, so I don't need to read it again. No, uh, I would love to read it again, but... We're going to read something else as well in just a moment. So you're going to need to have fingers in two places this morning. Uh, one is Nehemiah chapter 3, which is, as just as the, the, the recap goes, uh, God's city, Jerusalem, at this point in history, was desolate and ruined. God's people had been exiled. But now God's favor was upon Nehemiah and on the people of God there, um, enabling them to, to gather together to rebuild that city, to rebuild uh, not the temple that had already been uh, restored, but rebuilding the city walls to make Jerusalem uh, a secure and, and habitable city for God's people uh, once again. So we've kind of arrived at that point, then we got to chapter 3, and we've seen there how a great list of names, a great list of uh, different people who got involved in helping to rebuild the wall, um, gathering around different gates in the city wall, and restoring them, making repairs, and zealously going about their work. That's what we began to look at. We began to look at last time. Uh, this people, really, the people who are involved. Chapter 3 of, of Nehemiah is a whole raft of people's names, people who rolled up their sleeves, uh, got their hands dirty, and, and helped um, this big vision of restoring the city. And we began to look last time at, well, what sort of people are they? Basically, it's kind of a miraculous example of a few things. These people we saw are profoundly committed. They are flexible, adaptable in other words. And also, then thirdly, we saw last time how they are, uh, they were united. They're very much together of one heart and one mind. And it's really on that theme I want us to continue. Rather than look this week at what sort of people, I want to ask the question, what sort of unity do we see in Nehemiah chapter 3? And how do we apply that into our own life, into the life of the church today. And for that reason, I'd like us also to turn to the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. This is where you can keep another finger, uh, because we'll turn here on a, on a few occasions through the message today. Ephesians 4, and we're going to read uh, verse 1 through to 16 of Ephesians 4. Here we go. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, 
some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So there we have it. Unity. Unity in Nehemiah chapter 3. There are people who were united. We're going to be looking at that. And Ephesians chapter 4, a section of the Bible which the editors have uh, entitled, at least in my Bible, the unity of the body or the unity of the church. Unity is one of those words which straight away sounds right. Sounds like a good thing. Sounds important thing. Um, But actually, it's a word that can be used, certainly in a Christian context, to mean quite different things or to be applied in quite different ways. Now, when we look at the book of Nehemiah, we have a bit of a challenge. Because in Nehemiah, we are considering real historical events in the life of God's people uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was born. When God's people were of one ethnic race, when God's people really belonged in one specific geographic region of the world. And not only that, but God's place, God's presence was really in in just one city, uh, in Jerusalem and in the temple. So, okay, we can understand then that they they set to physically rebuilding walls. Well, how do we then apply that for ourselves now in the new covenant, hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus' um, life and death and resurrection, what does that mean now? We are not physically building a building or building walls. Uh, God's people are no longer concentrated in just one ethnic group, nor in one geographical area, nor indeed in one city. Uh, so how do we apply this? Then how do we apply this matter of the people being united? They were a united people. Really, that's what we're going to to uh, to look at today. What does it mean to be a united people? Because now uh, the people of God are of every nation, of every tribe. That's always been God's desire in any case, uh, that his people should be from every nation, speaking every language and every tongue, gathering together and saying, our God reigns. That's what's going to happen in glory. That's what's going to happen in heaven. But uh, God's people now, throughout the earth, um, and now it's therefore, it's not just about what God is doing in one city. Uh, it's about cities, towns, villages all over, uh, all over the world. Um, so then how do we apply it? We cannot apply it by thinking, right, let's gather ourselves, each small group, okay, you tackle that section of the wall. You rebuild that, Okay. Um, you guys, you rebuild that. No, it's, it's different now. It's not building a physical structure. It's building a, a spiritual community. Well, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be doing that as a people who are united? 
from Nehemiah 3 and then dipping in to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to look at four, four things. You're getting a quality message this morning because there are four points. Um, four ways in which uh, the people were united or four, the four grounds on which their unity was based and built. Uh, really the first is the key one. Um, so we'll spend some time looking at number one and then there are three others that play their part as well. So how was it these people were so united in what they did? Um, well, they had a common faith, a clearly common faith. Um, now, some of this we may have looked at previous weeks. Forgive me if it sounds very familiar. Um, but in other words, these people had heard what Nehemiah had said. Nehemiah had gone to Jerusalem and he shared his heart. He would shared the vision. He would shared God's faith upon him. And uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 18, as we've seen before, he told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Uh, later on, in responding to opposition, in, in verse 20, Nehemiah also says, the God of heaven will give us success. And I think we began to look at that last week, how faith was rising in the community when they heard what had happened so far, and then they were able to see with fresh eyes what God was doing right in the here and now. Yes, the God of heaven is going to give us success. The gracious hand of God is upon Nehemiah. So actually, this is about what God is doing. We believe that God's favor is on Nehemiah. We believe that God has been opening up a way for the city now to be restored, for the walls to be rebuilt. We can see God's hand on him, but we can see ultimately this is something that God is doing. So there's a, a common faith in God, a common faith in who he is and what he's doing. So these people were united by the same faith. They were not united first and foremost by just jumping to joint action, uh, kind of dashing around the city saying, well, I've got this project on, will you, know, will you sign my petition? Will, will you kind of sign to fill your slot? Um, oh, uh, well, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm just going to check what's, what's going on. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm free. Uh, I've got a couple of hours spare on, on Saturday afternoon. I, I could do a little bit. Um, it's not primarily kind of a unity that gathered around the project. This was not kind of a, a decision that people made. We are deciding to unite. No, this is basically unity is what happened because these people believed the same truths. God, God got hold of them. God got hold of their faith. They believed the same things and therefore they became united rather than uniting themselves and then trying to work out what they believe. Um, it was very much based on their, their faith. Actually, so therefore, God is the one who united them. Uh, God united them in faith and that led to action. It wasn't so much a case of them uniting themselves and then deciding what to do um, with their time and energy. And it's very much the same today, hence looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse, uh, and verse 3. We're told there, uh, Paul writes to exhort the believers in Ephesus, make every effort, interesting phrase given what Mark was preaching on recently, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep it rather than actually make every effort to create it. They've been told, no, we're a people who are called to make every effort to maintain, to keep 
the unity that the Spirit of God has brought about. Well, how has the Spirit of God brought about unity? How has God himself brought about unity? Well, read chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones would say in any case. Because there we see what is God's ultimate purpose on this planet. It's always to be, it's always been to bring unity. So you read from Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and we see God's plan unfolding through Jesus, his son, and by the power of the Spirit, that he's going to take people who are very opposed, who are very different, from very different backgrounds. He's actually going to do it to uh, the people groups that are most hostile. And so he's going to say to the Jew, and he's going to say to the Gentile, now in Christ, though before now, a big wall of hostility has been between you. A massive division has um, been on this planet. Now, in Christ, that wall is being demolished. And I am making one new man. One new people. One new community. And what unites this community is they have faith in the Lord Jesus. And they have faith in him coming as a baby, the Son of God. They have faith in him living, demonstrating the kingdom of God, and then going to the cross to die, to take upon himself all punishment that our sin had brought about. There's wonderful, rich doctrine in, relatively speaking, three succinct Chapters. So he writes in chapter 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the ruler of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That was the issue. But because of his great love in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It was by grace you've been saved. And so therefore he's going on to explain. Therefore he himself, in verse 14, is our peace, who made the two one. Who are the two? The two are Gentiles, those who are not um, traditionally uh, in the people of God, and those who are Jews, the, the people that God initially and originally chose to uh, be a blessing to the whole world. God's plan was for blessing. God's plan was for unity. But sin divides. Sin brings hostility. So when God comes, he brings peace. He brings a restoration. And he makes an end of that hostility. He reconciles. He brings people together. He unites. People who even have been uh, vehemently at odds with one another. And so we are then encouraged not to create unity but to keep it to make every effort to maintain what god has done maintain um, the unity that god has brought about um, through the bond of peace and there is a a unity in the church through all ages it's why uh, sometimes in some ways you can Meet another believer in Jesus, having not laid eyes on them before, not spoken to them ever in your life. Uh, As you talk to them, you realize their background, their life story, 
their culture, in a, in a human sense, is entirely different from your own. But sometimes there can be those moments where after just five minutes of conversation, you think, there's, there's a connection here. There's an affinity here. There's, there's a sense of we, we know we can stand alongside each other. We know that we know there's something linking us together more than just what we've been able to talk about in five minutes. There's a bond of peace. There's a, a connection between believers, even if they haven't um, been in conversation much before. That won't necessarily always be the case. Yeah, there's a, there's a bond of peace. There's a unity of the spirit that needs maintaining, sometimes needs working out. That's why Paul was giving that exhortation. But nevertheless, that's, that's a glimpse of the fullness of what God has done and will be revealed in glory. A sense of, I've never met you before, but now that we're both here in glory before the throne, it's like we're, we are brothers and we, we know and we support and we love and we're together in this. Um, so that is Christian unity. However, Christian unity can be and sometimes is uh, understood, misunderstood. In other words, unity is thought of as something that we do. Uh, sometimes the, the phrases use uh, ecumenical unity. The word ecumenical means all-embracing. And its focus is, or its ultimate belief is, that there is obviously just one church, God's bride that he died for, and really, therefore, in every town, in every place, there should actually only be one church. Therefore, churches should make a big effort to, to gather together. And sometimes along with that idea um, is the, the thought or the belief that actually if we want to see revival, revival will only, only come if all churches amalgamate um, and become visibly on the earth one. Church history doesn't actually show that. Um, so church history of revival often shows that when God pulls out revival power and there are hundreds or thousands of people coming to Christ opposition to the move of God can sometimes come from other other quarters of what appears to be the visible church um, that would be the case in the outer Hebrides in the 1940s a massive revival um, where did opposition come from actually in some instances it came from other churches saying well that's not how things should be done that's we don't think that's authentic. We don't think that's genuine. So massive blessing being poured out. It doesn't necessarily bring a wonderful experience of the wider church unity. Actually, sometimes it highlights uh, differences that are there and, uh, and, and the sin that can be in, in our hearts. So where that leads to, that kind of unity leads to actually ignoring doctrine so if churches have to make an effort to gather together in order for god to do something notice the order we must do something and then god will do something rather than nehemiah god's doing something we're all rising in faith and therefore we're going to do dot 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 um but the the order gets switched around so the church we we all have to gather together in one big amalgamated uh grouping therefore well don't talk about anything which might highlight slight differences. Okay, so don't talk about baptism in water because people have got different perspectives on that. 
church history has resulted in a few different ways in which baptism has been understood. Do you baptize a baby or do you baptize someone when they become a believer? The latter. Um, but, okay, so we can't talk about that then because it might highlight differences. Baptism in the Spirit, now we, we can't really talk about that because that will highlight differences. We can't really talk about the atonement. In other words, how we understand Jesus' work on the cross. Was that just an example? Uh, was that actually uh, producing... Uh, was, was he taking upon himself punishment? Was he our substitute? Was it something else? How do we understand that? How do we understand church? Lots of things over which Christians can clash. All right, well, okay, we need to achieve unity, so don't talk about it. Don't talk about those things. We must, we must act as one. We must make a show of solidarity. We must show the world in some ways that Christians are a force to be reckoned with, or we must show the spiritual authorities that we are a force to be reckoned with. Therefore, there's an emphasis on all churches grouping together. There was a slight irony uh, recently in having a conversation with another church leader who uh, leads uh, a Christ-central-related church in another town, another city. And, uh, and he just brief, I was just asking him the, the, the situation in, in, uh, where he is. And he said, um, in, in my city, there are two church unity groups. And it just took a moment for the irony to sink in. Um, before conversation moved on. Because I think, yeah, a great value on unity. But for, for those who might kind of want to amalgamate and put a great emphasis on kind of churches getting together and collaborating, there's still choices that get made by virtue of relationship, perhaps by virtue of history, uh, by virtue of what they believe. And actually, while we're, nothing's going to happen unless we unite, say, the two groups. <laughs> uh, and uh, well, who knows how that comes out. a little bit more is something which might be more called a coalition and by what we know in government uh, a coalition can be very helpful but let's not kid ourselves that it is actually a fundamental unity so at the moment we have one government made up of two parties and by and large on some things they can agree and so joint action can come from the cabinet on the things that they agree but there's lots of areas that they won't agree on and can't agree on unless only one of them was in government. And that's the stuff that gets left uh, till 2015 or beyond. Um, so coalitions have a... Um, but they can't be over-egged. Uh, there will be agreement, and that's helpful, but it's limited. Church leaders can meet together. Uh, Mark and I sometimes in the benefit... Of, of doing that with some church leaders in, in the city that we've just developed a relationship with, who'd be quite different from ourselves in some ways. Um, but we're able to get together, um, not necessarily for the outworking of great kind of joint action, but just personally, in friendship, stand alongside each other and get to know each other. It can be helpful. We can pray for other churches. And sometimes, in some areas, there can be joint action. Um, Sometimes uh, in the past there have been evangelistic crusades, uh, say when Billy Graham would come uh, to the UK and put on a massive event, and many churches would, would join in with that. That can happen from time to time, or uh, in projects like Food Bank, uh, there can be ways in which resources uh, are shared and people can get together and share, kind of compare notes and so on. But the big aim is not for there to be just one Christian church um, in every Location. What the book of Nehemiah shows us is that there are people 
that God has united not just individuals with different vested interests, with different ideas and beliefs, but who have decided to come together for the sake of a joint venture. No, there are people who God has united. And they're united because of what they believe. They believe that the God of heaven is is leading them and the God of heaven has his favor uh, on them and on Nehemiah and that now is the time to rebuild uh, the walls of Jerusalem. If it had just been a case of different people with different beliefs signing up for some joint venture, surely it would have fractured. But what we see here is unity that is profound, not just pragmatic. It's not just agreeing to get along and ignoring differences. It's a profound unity. And that is reflected in a strong common faith. That is why our um, our perspective would be that of emphasizing the unity of a church congregation, of a, of a church community together, where, where unity is expressed. Uh, not that there's no effort to maintain unity elsewhere um, with other churches and other believers, but that would be the, the primary way um, in which we would seek to express it. Praying for other churches, yes, bless all churches seeking to um, preach Jesus in this city. And let's all crack on with it um, as, we, as we go on into a new year, indeed. So common faith, there we go. That was the big point. I'm going to touch on three others uh, before we round up. What Nehemiah also shows us is that this unity was based primarily on common faith, but also on clear leadership. In other words, Nehemiah is clearly leading. The people are mobilized. The people are gathered uh, to, to the vision that Nehemiah uh, shares with them. Now, Nehemiah is clearly leading, but in another way, it's very clear to say that God is leading. God is leading, and he chooses to use people. And indeed, he chooses to send people. That's what's happened to Nehemiah, isn't it? He's been in Susa. And one way or another, well, okay, yeah, we could say that it's uh, King Artaxerxes who has sent him. But if it wasn't for God sending him, that wouldn't have happened. Ultimately, fundamentally, God decided, I'm going to send Nehemiah. I'm sending him 800 miles to my people in Jerusalem. God is a God who uses and sends people to achieve his purposes. And again, we see that in the New Covenant, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 4. So uh, reading from verse 11, we read there about uh, Jesus. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Paul is writing this letter. Indeed, that's what he's done himself. God sent him from where he was in Antioch, and he went from place to place. He arrives in Ephesus. He finds some, uh, some believers. He kind of educates them a little bit more on, uh, on, the, on the faith, and he spends two years uh, teaching and dialoguing in the hall of Tyrannus. You can read about it in Acts Somewhere, um, 19 onwards, I think. <laughs> um, uh, so for two years, he's, he's teaching and he's meeting with um, believers. And the message 
uh, goes right throughout Asia Minor. Now, Paul doesn't stay there forever. Two years, he moves on. But he's kind of laid the foundation. That's what an apostle does. Lays the foundation and continues to relate. Hence writing this letter. Hence revisiting uh, the city as well. Um, to ensure this, this, uh, this church continues to be built on the solid foundations that he himself laid down. So it shows that in God's will, a united church is very much open to receiving input from the outside. So if it sounds a, li- ins- a little bit insular, as if I was saying, okay, we're just not emphasizing the, the need to kind of gather together citywide with lots of other churches and lots of other leaders, then this is clearly showing us that actually God has intended the church to be open to receiving input. So the church is not to be united and exclusive, united and narrow-minded, kind of united, um, but kind of yeah, just isolated or elitist. No, nothing of the sort. The church is united but always ready to learn. United but wanting to receive the gifts that God gives. And some of those gifts are people. People like Nehemiah who aren't from our town, but who come and sort of just deposit something so helpful. And as I was thinking about that over the course of the last year and a bit more, we have had amongst us apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers who have come here and who have blessed us and who have encouraged us and have been building um, kind of fresh faith and understanding into us. And relationship is key. It's not just random bods, but people for whom there's already a, a connection. People who are known to us and known, uh, and, and, and whom we know. And yet they come in and can, and, and can see things with fresh eyes and help us continue, help us on our way, help us to continue to build. Uh, so like I say, the last 12 months or more has involved that. It's good to, uh, to be looking forward to January the 26th when Jonathan Bell uh, will be coming from Birmingham uh, to come and minister amongst us as well. Obviously, there is a strong connection. Obviously, whilst you may not have spoken to Jonathan Bell personally, um, he knows us. And there's a sense in which we know him. We know, we know his parents. We know where he's come from. And he knows where we've come from. And uh, it'll be great to look forward to receiving him as a gift and yes receiving him because of his parents and because of that relational connection but also receiving him as someone that God wants to use he's just so happens leading a church in a big city just so happens leading a church of multiple congregations and uh, there'll be something for us to learn and get hold of on the 26th of January stick that in your diary if it wasn't there Already, But God gives people to his church to keep moving us on, to keep helping us grow uh, to, to unity. He also gives elders, uh, apostles, when they went from place to place, then would appoint, um, appoint elders to continue to, to lead and teach and govern the church. Uh, but again, this, these are people that God himself gives to the church. So in Acts 20 and verse 28... Again, uh, Paul giving his farewell speech to the elders in Ephesus writes this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock 
of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit makes people overseers, uh, elders, shepherds, whose primary function is to care for the flock and to care by teaching and to care by pastoring and leading and directing. And so when a shepherd cares for his sheep, um, in the ancient world, there wouldn't have been fences. Um, there was just open land. And so the shepherd would go ahead. And the shepherd would go because he needed to find pasture. He needed to find safe water. He needed to make sure that there would be nothing that would poison the sheep if they ate it. He needed to make sure that predators were dealt with. And so he'd go, go ahead and lead up through a valley, maybe of the shadow of, the, of death, and get onto the tabletop, get onto a plateau. Ah, good pasture is up here. Right, he turns around and he goes to the sheep. Right, this is the way to come. And they follow his voice um, because he doesn't have a tractor uh, or a sheepdog and there are no fences. So it's all down to the voice. It's all down to the shepherd speaking and leading in that way. And the, sh- the sheep follow. But how does the shepherd feel when he turns around and sees, oh no, they've wandered off. And in the time it's taken me to go up there, they've, they've gone over here, they've found other pasture. And again, there's freedom to do it because there's no, there's no fences. Lines get blurred. And so sheep are free to go and drink from other streams that the shepherd has said, actually, that's not great. Uh, eat from other sources that the shepherd has said, that's not, that's not going to be helpful. And, uh, and again, sometimes in the life of the church, broadly, lines can get blurred. There are organizations uh, and individuals who are uh, believers and who want to gather people. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll gather people to the, to the thing or the project or the, or the course or the cause that they're particularly interested in. And you can probably give towards that and you can give a lot of time towards that. And in a sense, you can be their sheep of a fashion. Um, but actually, in some respects, it's kind of genius. It's, this is Note the sarcasm. This is pastorally genius. If independent believer over there starts running a course or wants to uh, set himself up as sometimes a phrase that was used a little while ago, a spiritual director. Spiritual director was the idea was that you would meet with someone who was essentially your pastor and they would direct your spiritual life. But the important thing was that they were completely removed from your situation. Um, uh, completely independent from it, so that then they could speak objectively into it. Um, and what that means is you get a very powerful um, and kind of private arrangement where the spiritual director says, I think you should do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you should do this, and all the rest of it. Um, and then the little per- uh, person goes on to the church and is trying to make sense of this pastoral advice in a situation that that pa- person really doesn't experience or know anything about themselves. This is pastoral genius. Do you know why? Because the group or the individual gets the, the, the prestige and the power and the influence of having sheep that follow them. But when trouble comes, it's, I think probably what you need to go and do is speak to your elders of your local church. And so you get the, 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 the honor, if you like, of pastoring. But as soon as a responsibility comes, it's, oh, go and speak to someone in your church about that. That's, that's, that's probably kind of beyond. That is the difference between a shepherd 
and a hired hand. You speak to the hired hand and it's, my job's done now. You've completed the course. Or uh, let's meet, no, no, it's, uh, that's what a hired hand is like. Oh, there may be trouble ahead. Go see your elder before it gets too much worse. Well, what's going on? <laughs> uh, oh, right. Um, God has put elders in the church who the Holy Spirit makes an elder tick. And it ticks in this way. Give your life to the sheep. Care for the sheep. Love and lead the sheep. Help the sheep. Strengthen the sheep. And give your life up for the sheep. That's what a shepherd is called to do. So it's not a case of people, sheep thinking the shepherd is saying, you can do this and you can't do that. Um, that's what God wants to give. In, in Nehemiah, we, we see an example of people who are united in faith and they know who they're following. They're united in leadership. And so that was, in a sense, that was Nehemiah's. Ultimately God's, but God sent Nehemiah and, and people followed Nehemiah and his vision. Didn't necessarily mean that everybody who was building got personal access to Nehemiah, could you just show me um, how how does this brick uh, fit in place? If that's the case, Nehemiah just one bolt runs from section of the wall, section of the wall, section of the wall to here, there, all the time, kind of ragged by dealing with brick by brick by brick. And so then, well, we we get this great list of names in Nehemiah three. I kind of wonder whether it's a case of here are all the guys. Um, who were leading. So it wasn't just about Nehemiah, it's others being raised up, so that you knew if you were working on the fish gate, uh, you'd probably go and speak to Meshulam, or Merimoth, if you remember him from two weeks ago. Good guy, two sections of the wall, hardcore. Um, we like him. Um, but you, people knew who they were giving themselves to. And so in Nehemiah, I think we get an Old Testament glimpse of what we see also kind of briefly mentioned in two Corinthians uh, chapter 8 when Paul is writing and he's commending the Macedonian believers and he says there in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5 they did not uh, they did not do as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will they gave themselves to the Lord and and also to us a sense of primary um loyalty goes to Jesus. Of course it does. But sometimes divisions come in the life of the church when people say, well, I don't follow Paul and I don't follow Peter. I follow Christ. In other words, my relationship with Jesus is just hotline to heaven. I don't need to relate to any other leader. Or what I do is just, it's just me and him always. And what we see here is they, they gave themselves to God and also to us. They, they gave themselves to, to the Lord and to Paul. Or they gave themselves to the Lord, and also to Nehemiah, or also to Merimoth, if you see what I mean. So there's, there's clear leadership involved. There's clear vision. That's the third thing. If we don't get to the fourth thing, that's clear values. Clear vision is that they were all on the same page knowing what they were doing. Um, so 
uh, Nehemiah says, doesn't he, in, in chapter 2, verse 17. You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And that is precisely what they did. They restored the wall. They made repairs. They were united fundamentally by their faith, also by leadership. They were united also by having the same goal. They shared the same vision, and that vision was clear, creating uh, or recreating, rebuilding a city. Like I said at the outset, today the focus is obviously not so much on physical buildings, physical walls, and just one city, but the focus is on building spiritual community, a secure space, a a secure place, a secure people among whom people can encounter God. And again, uh, in wonderful ways that we perhaps don't have a uh, load of time to get into, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, from verse 14, describes there, then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God is building something. God is building a community of people who speak to each other truth in love, who together in all things are growing up in their relationship is what is key. They're, they're growing up, they're, they're maturing that process, they're also connected one with another, supporting one another, growing together. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of the church being built. It's a building. It's being constructed, uh, built together. And that's what God has in mind for his church. But it's possible to think of church as Cinderella. What do I mean? Well, you can think of Cinderella in a couple of ways. You can think of Cinderella as the girl before she went to the ball. And what was life like for Cinderella before she got to go to the ball? She had to do all the chores for everybody else. She had to um, stay at home, pretty much. That's what stepmother said, isn't it? You stay at home, we're going to the party. You have to get all these jobs done. It's a mundane monotonous and dull life within, conf- uh, with a, within a confined space. And oh, how she must have dreamt of what it would be like to be outside and able to go to the ball and able to meet new people and all the rest of it. Some people view church like that. It's a confined space. It's drab. It's dull. It's monotonous. It's the spiritual equivalent of doing chores. And if you really get to make it, it's, it's life outside the church. That's kind of what's exciting. That's what's inspiring. Rather than seeing that Cinderella had a visit. Oh, this is where it gets strange. I'm not making big spiritual points here, by the way. Just reminding you of a story that you already know. Uh, Cinderella was visited by a fairy godmother. Read nothing spiritual into that whatsoever. Um, but her situation was transformed. Um, she was clothed differently. 
And she, she kind of received, she was provided for in miraculous ways, um, in glorious ways. And she was able to go to the ball. And when she went to the ball, she was the one who turned heads. And she was the one who grabbed the eye of the prince. And the prince only wants to dance with her. Um, and when the end of the evening comes, he's, she's the one that he wants to be with. And so, again, we see Christ, the groom, the prince, who only has eyes for this woman, the church. Now, what is, what, obviously you know what happens with the glass slipper and that kind of little shenanigan or whatever. But what ultimately happens is they are actually, they are united. They become husband and wife. And obviously the fairy tale goes, they disappear off into the sunset. Now, come back to planet Earth for just a moment. Um, we know that there will be an awesome ending in the future. But life in the here and now is not just one long sunset moment where everything is perfect. Um, you kind of wonder, well, I guess from time to time, even for a princess, there were probably some chores to do. There were some, some, some jobs to get done. There were some, there were some practicalities. There, there would sometimes be the need to kind of roll up sleeves and get on with something. In other words, that's life for the church, isn't it? There are sometimes occasions to roll up the sleeves and get cracking, and it's not always glitz and glamour. Obviously, right now, with these wonderful decorations, it is. Um, but now, united to the prince, her life is entirely different. And she is on an adventure. And it is not monotonous. And it's not predictable. And it's not just in a kind of confined space. And oh, I wish I could get outside the church. Uh, because spiritually, church is dull. Out there somehow is what's interesting. What we see here is no church is where it's at. This is the people that God has come in the flesh to win for himself. A people who are united, a people who are drawn together in the same faith, a people who are called on a mission. They've got a vision and they've got big dreams. And yes, they're rolling up their sleeves, but they're they're profoundly aware the God of heaven is with us. The God of all glory will grant us success. The, the God of heaven is, is, is here and his hand of favor is upon us. Right, come then. Let's build the wall. Let's go for it. You see, this is a people who are, they are profoundly united. They are profoundly together. There is a vision that they're working out. There are, there are values, if you like, that are the ways in which they do things. The how they were going to build and, uh, and, and needing to do that carefully and do it well. Uh, some churches might not always have the same values. Values aren't necessarily absolutely fundamental on everything. Um, so that uh, different churches do things in slightly different ways. But one way or another, faith is involved. Real convictions are involved. No, we're not going to build like that. Why? Well, because God's given us faith to do something different. We don't have a children's work. Well, do you know why? Because we've got freedom to do something different. We've got freedom to pursue values and convictions that God has given us that won't be replicated elsewhere. And we don't spend our time, believe it or not, kind of saying other churches should do this and other churches should do that. No, we want to run with what God's given us and uh, blessing the city around us, blessing other churches and believing God for what he wants to achieve amongst us. 
by a people who are genuinely and profoundly united. And uh, that's what I'm looking forward to in 2014. I'm going to speak on Christmas morning, but this is kind of, in a sense, the last occasion to speak into the new year um, before it happens. In the new year, in February, the first Tuesday of February, we will start our intro course. Intro is short for an introduction to what we believe. And it's the course that we run um, to do just that, really, so that people who are who are looking into the church, wondering about joining, uh, can find out more about who we are, what we believe, what makes us tick, and what our vision is, and what we believe in God for. We get to share the stories of what God has done in the life of the church, in our history, and we get to share the faith that, uh, that we have for God leading us on from this point. We get to talk about uh, who God is and how Jesus saves us and what, what baptism in water is, uh, is about and uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, being filled with the Holy Spirit. We look at that. We look at what does it mean to be a church together and what are the key values that we have as a church in being a church together. It's called intro because it is just that. But I'm kind of also tempted to call it remind. Um, and uh, I would like to encourage you to consider this February, would you like to come on a course called Remind? It will be held at exactly the same time and in exactly the same place, uh, at exactly the same day of the week as another course called Intro. And the content is exactly the same. And it will be delivered by the same individual each evening. But if you think, actually, I perhaps do need a reminder of, of what are we about as City Church? There's a city that we're interested in, but we need to see the church. Okay, what does that mean? Um, I would invite you to come along. I'd invite you also to let us know if you're coming along. Because normally what happens is we have a group of about 12 um, who sign up, who are new to the church. And, uh, and if you all heartily receive uh, my encouragement today, we might have to run the course slightly differently. And you may not all have the opportunity to ask a question. We might reserve that to people who are coming along for the very first time. Um, but the, the opportunity is there. Why? Because unity matters. Why? Because faith matters. Why? Because vision matters. Why? Because values matter. Why? Because the church matters. Why? Because the city matters. That's what this is all about. We want to be a people who bless the city, reach the city. Therefore, we need to be a people who are very clear and very firm on what we believe. A jolly men. Let's pray.